Book 1, Chapter 16 of The History of Pompey the Little. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sudeshna. The History of Pompey the Little or The Life and Adventures of a Lap Dog by Francis Coventry. Book 1, Chapter 16. The History of a Highwayman. I think you have often told me, old father hypocrite, that you begat me under a hedge near Newbury in Berkshire. This, I confess, is not the most honourable way of coming into the world, but no man is answerable for his birth, and therefore what signifies prevarication? Alexander, I have heard, was the son of a flying dragon, and Romulus was suckled by a plaguy confounded wolf, as I have read in Hook's Roman history. And yet in time he grew to be a very pretty young fellow, and a king. But you are ignorant of these matters, both of you, and therefore I only play the fool to talk about them in such company. Well, sir, as soon as I was born, my mother, I suppose, wrapped me up in the dirty rags of an old rotten petticoat, and lugged me about behind her shoulders as an object to move compassion. In this agreeable situation, nuzzling behind the back of a lousy drab, excuse me, old fellow, for making so free with your concert, in this situation, I suppose, I visited all the towns in England. And it's amazing, I was not rippled with having my feet and limbs bundled up in such close confinement. But I kicked hard for liberty, and at length came out that easy, dégagé, jaunty young fellow of fashion which you now behold me. My genius very early began to show itself, and before I was twelve years old, you know, I had acquired a great reputation for sleight of hand which being reported to a great master of that science, he immediately took me under his care, and promised to initiate me into all the mysteries of the art. Thus I bade adieu to the dirty employment of pecking, left father and mother, and struck into a higher sphere of life. At first, indeed, I meddled only with petty larceny, and was sent out to try my hand on execution days at Tyburn where having acquitted myself with honour, I was quickly promoted to better business, and by that time I was fifteen, began to make a great figure in the passages about the theatres. Many a gentleman's fob have I eased of the trouble of carrying a watch, and though it may look like vanity to say so, I believe I furnish more broker shops and peddler's boxes than half the pickpockets in London besides. None of them all had so great a levy of travelling Jews to travel for buckles, seals, watches, tweezer cases, and the like as I had. But my chief dexterity was in robbing the ladies. There is a peculiar delicacy required in whipping one's hand up a lady's petticoats and carrying off her pockets, which few of them ever attained to with any success. That now was my glory, and that was my delight. I performed it to admiration, and outdid them all in this branch of the craft. I remember once a chambermaid of my acquaintance, a flame of mine, gave me notice that her young lady would be at play such a night with a pair of diamond buckles in her shoes. You may be sure I washed her into her coach, marked her into her box, and waited for her coming out, with some of the fraternity to assist me. At last, as soon as the play was over, out she came, tittering and laughing with her companions, who by good luck happened to be all of her own sex. This now was my time. I had her up in my arms in a moment, while one of my comrades whipped off her shoes with prodigious expedition. But my reason for telling the story is this. While I had her in my arms, let me die if I could help giving her a kiss, which hanged me if the little trembler did not seem to return, with her heart panting and breast heaving. Deuce take me! 
if I was not almost sorry afterwards to see her walking to her coach without any shoes upon her feet. Well, sir, this was my course of life for a few years. But ambition, you know, is a thing never to be satisfied, and having gained all the glory I could in this way, my next step of promotion was to the gaming tables. Here I played with great success a long while, and shared in the fleecing of many raw young quillies who had more money than wit. But one unfortunate night the devil, or my evil genius, carried me to a masquerade, and there, in the ill-omened habit of a friar, being fool enough to play upon an honourable footing, I lost all I had to a few shillings. This was a confounded stroke. This was a stunning blow to me. I lay abed all the next day, raving at my ill-fortune, and beating my brains to think I could be such an ass as to play upon the squire. At last, in a fit of despair, I started out of bed about nine or ten o'clock at night, borrowed a friend's horse, bought a second-hand pair of poppers, with the little silver th that was left me, and away I rode full gallop, night and rainy as it was, for Hounslaw Heath. There I wandered about half dead with cold and fear till morning, and to say the truth, began to grow devilish sick of my business. When day broke, the first object that presented itself to my eyes, I remember, was a gallows within a hundred yards of me. This seemed plaguy ominous, and I was very near riding back to London without striking a stroke. At last, while I was wavering in this state of uncertainty, behold, a stage-coach comes gently, softly ambling over the heath. Courage, my heart cries. There can be no fear of resistance here. A stage-coach is the most lucky thing in the world for a young adventurer. And so saying, I clapped on my mask, the same I had worn the night before at the haymarket, set spurs to my horse, and presented my pistol at the coach-window. How the passengers behaved I know not. For my own part I was more than half blind with fear, and taking what they gave me without any expostulation, away I rode, exceedingly well satisfied to have escaped without resistance. Taking courage, however, at this success, I attacked another stage-coach, with greater bravery, and afterwards a third, with so much magnanimity that I even ventured to search some of the passengers, who I thought defrauded me of my due. Here now I should have left off, and all have been well. But that devil avarice prompting me to get a little more, I attacked a single horseman, and plundered him of a watch and about thirty guineas. The scoundrel seemed to pursue his journey quietly enough, but meeting afterwards with some of his friends on the road, and relating his case to them, they all agreed to pursue me. Meanwhile, sir, I was jogging on contentedly at my ease, when turning around on a sudden, I saw this tremendous grazier, and two or three more bloody-minded fellows that seemed such as big as a giant, in full pursuit of me. Away I dashed through thick and thin as if the devil drove, but being wretchedly mounted I was surrounded, apprehended, carried before that infernal Sir Thomas Devey, and he committed me. Now I was in a sweet condition. This was a charming revolution in my life. Newgate and the prospects of a gallows furnish a man with very agreeable reflections. Over that cursed old Bailey, I shall never forget the sentence which the humdrum son of a war of a judge passed upon me. You shall hang till you are dead, dead, dead. Faith, I was more than half dead with hearing it, and in that plight I was dragged back to my prison. Excellent lodging in the condemned hole. Pretty music the death warrant rings in a man's ears. But as good luck would have it, while I was expecting every hour to be tucked up, his majesty, God bless him, took pity on me the very day before execution, and sent me a reprieve for transportation. To describe the transport I felt at this moment would be impossible. 
I was half mad with joy and instead of reflecting that I was going to slavery, fancied myself going to heaven. The being shipped off for Jamaica was so much better a voyage, I thought, than ferrying over that same river stikes with old Gaffar Sharon, that I never once troubled myself about what I was to suffer when I got thither. Not to be tedious, for I hate a long story. To Jamaica I went, with the full resolution of making my escape by the first opportunity, which I very soon accomplished. After leading the life of a dog for about a year and a half, I got on board a ship which was coming for England, and arrived safe and sound on the coast of Cornwall. My dear native country, how it revived my heart to see thee again! Oh, London, London, no woman of quality, after suffering the vapours for a whole summer in the country, ever sighed after thee with greater desire than I did. But as I landed without a farthing of money in my pocket, I was obliged to beg my way up to town, in the habit of a sailor, telling all the way the confoundest lies, how I had been taken by pirates and fought with the Moors, who were going to eat me alive, and twenty other unaccountable stories to chow silly women of a few halfpence. Well, at last I entered the dear old metropolis, and went immediately in a quest of a gang of sharpers which I formerly frequented. These jovial blades were just then setting out for new market races, and very generously took me into their party. They supplied me with cloth, lent me a little money to begin with, and in short set me up again in the world. There is nothing like courage. Tis the life, the soul of business. Accordingly, on the very first day's port, having marked out the horse that I saw was the favourite of the knowing ones, I offered great odds, made as many bets as I could, and trusted myself to fortune. Resolving to scamper off the course as hard as I could drive, if I saw her likely to declare against me. But as it happened to make amends for her former ill-usage, the jade now decided in my favour. "'Twas quite a hollow thing! Goliath won the day! And I pocketed up about three score guineas. Of this I made excellent use at the gaming tables, and in short, when the week was over, carried away from Newmarket a cool three hundred. Now, my dear Bess, I was a man again. I returned immediately to London, equipped myself with lace clothes, rattled down to Bath in a post-chaise, gave myself out for the eldest son of Sir Jeremy Gruskin of the Kingdom of Ireland, and struck at once into all the joys of high life. This is a little epitome of my history. Having been a pickpocket, a sharper, a slave, and a highwayman, I am now the peculiar favourite of all the ladies at Bath. Here the beau finished his story, and sat expecting the applauses of his company, which he very soon received on the part of his sister. But as to that worthy gentleman, his father, he had been fast asleep for several minutes, and did not hear the conclusion of this wonderful history. Being now waked by silence and the cessation of his son's voice, as he had been before lulled to sleep by his talking, he cried out from the midst of a dose, So, she's a very fine girl, is she, Jack? A very fine girl. Who is a very fine girl? cries the sharper, slapping him over the shoulder. Why sounds thou art asleep, old miserable, and dost not know a syllable of what has been said? Yes, sir, I do know what has been said, returned the father, and therefore you need not beat one so, Jack. You was telling about going to be married and uh, going to Jamaica. Going to Jamaica. Pox take thee, thou wantest to be going to bed. Why was there ever such a wretched old dotard? I have not seen thee these seven or eight years, and perhaps may never see thee again, for thou'lt be rotten in a year or two more, and yet canst not put a little life into thyself for one evening. Come, Bess, added he, let us take another bumper, and then bid old drowsy good night. Silenus will snore, do what can, one, to prevent him. 
here my girl, here's prosperity to love and may all sleepers go to the devil. Nay, nay, cries the father, consider Jack, this past bedtime many hours ago. You find gentlemen of the world are able to bear these fashionable hours, but I have been used to live by the light of the sun. Besides, if you had been drudging about after charity as I have all day long, I fancy you would not be in a much better condition than your poor father. But really, you sharpers, don't consider the toil and trouble of earning one's bread in an honest way. Why now, I have not gathered above six or seven shillings this whole day, and that won't half pay for our supper tonight. Here the beau bestowed several curses on him for his stinginess, and contemptuously bidding him board up his miserable pelf, generously undertook to pay the whole. The bill was then called for, the reckoning discharged, and the company separated, having first, however, made an agreement to meet there the succeeding evening. And thus ended this illustrious computation. End of Book 1, Chapter 16 Recording by Sudeshna